I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As Joe Biden's approval rating hits record lows, will Democrats decide to replace him in 2024? And should we feel sorry for the US president? To discuss the state of American politics and the culture wars, I'm joined by the best-selling author and commentator, Lionel Shriver. As a Joe Biden voter, how do you feel about his presidency so far? Deeply disappointed. Uh, and, And my expectations were pretty low to begin with. He has not been the president that I thought I voted for. I voted for a centrist. I didn't expect him to be exciting. He's been a little too exciting. I certainly didn't expect him to go all identitarian and back transgender participation in women's sports and commit himself to nominating all kinds of cabinet appointments on the basis of whether or not a given person was female or gay or black or whatever. I I expected him to appoint people because they were qualified for the job, and that didn't seem to pertain. I think maybe he's redeemed himself a little during U- the Ukrainian situation. He's been competent at organizing the sanctions and uh, helped create a sense of Western unity. I think that's been his biggest success as a president so far. But obviously, Afghanistan was a debacle and has would have helped encourage Putin's invasion to begin with. Uh, I've been horrified by the amount of money that he wants to spend. And I think it's irresponsible. The excesses government spending is one of the clear explanations for why we're suffering from escalating inflation. And I'm also worried that he's not actually in control, that he's just a puppet. He's still capable of reading a teleprompter most of the time, but I don't feel he's actually making the decisions. And that means somebody who was not elected or a group of people who were not elected are making the decisions instead. And that is overtly anti-democratic. Who do you think is making the decisions? I'm not quite sure. I think Bernie Sanders is in there somewhere. So is Elizabeth Warren, because their policies that they advocated during the primaries are being pursued. They're fortunately not making it through Congress. This is legislation, the Build Back Better Bill, for example, 
that they could have written. So maybe they did. Do you think that Joe Biden faces a total wipeout in the midterms? Yes, but with an asterisk. Trump could make that uh, the takeover of both houses of Congress less likely. I think he still thinks that he is a power broker. He still regards himself as the one person in the Republican Party who is the kingmaker or prince maker, if you will. There can only be one king. And therefore, he thinks he can pick who should be the Republican candidates in all these races. And there, you know, to some extent, he, he will draw votes because of that, but he also loses votes because of that. If the Republican Party could get over Trump, there would be an absolute landslide on, on a congressional level in the next election. And then they could also just walk into the White House in 24. Biden is hugely unpopular. The Democrats have not lined anybody up instead who's electable in 2024. So Republicans have this wide open door in both elections. And although I'm technically a registered Democrat, I believe that this administration has to be stopped. And I don't resist a Republican takeover of both houses of Congress. If nothing else, it will just keep Biden from being able to enact legislation that I don't want to go through. And I'd rather have a powerless administration than one that has power to do dumb things. Let's talk about some of those dumb things or, you know, supposedly dumb things that Biden is doing that's annoying people so much. So you talk about inflation, you talk about his sort of divisive identity politics rhetoric, but also, you know, choosing these candidates because of their, their identity and their race. You also implied or inferred to his gaffes that he's making on the world stage. Can you talk a bit about some of those reasons? Maybe there are more reasons why he's so unpopular at the moment. Well, you pretty much covered it. I think I'm not alone in feeling bamboozled by uh, having voted for one candidate and getting a completely different president. I think there's a, a lot of widespread resentment among Democratic centrists that this was not the person they thought they were voting for. And nobody likes bait and switch. It's a feeling of having been fooled, and it's, a, it's an unpleasant experience. Inflation is probably the most important issue in the country right now, and it's completely out of control, and it is directly related to excess government spending. Some of it uh, during the Trump administration, but Biden has carried on spending like there's no tomorrow, and the Federal Reserve has increased the amount of dollars in circulation by something like 36% over the course of a year and a half, which is astonishing. How can they not, not be inflationary? Well, surprise, it is inflationary. And I think uh, the country was widely embarrassed by the withdrawal troops in Afghanistan. And there's certainly a case to be made that that was so shambolic that it uh, inspired Putin to believe that the United States had lost a grip and was no longer militarily capable or competent at the executive level. I think that Americans are keenly aware of the fact that we are perceived to have a weak president, which is a slightly different problem from having a weak president, but they're both problems. There's something almost dangerously metaphorical about the fact that we have elected such an elderly and 
arguably doddering president. It seems to imply that the country itself is geriatric in a state of decline, that we are ourselves in our civilizational twilight. And I think that's a bad look. Before we get on to the wider questions of America's power in the world, let's focus on Joe Biden. Let's continue to focus on him. Do you feel sorry for the president? Entirely. Yes, I do. I'm not convinced that he's exposed to all the mean things that people say about him. I, I, I expect that he's that, that, that the people around him make some effort to protect him from especially the kind of thing that I read in the comment sections of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> They're vicious. You know, a lot of the commentary is cruel. And I don't enjoy cruelty, and I would certainly not want to be subject to that kind of cruelty. But I think when you become president, what you feel personally has to take a backseat to the greater concern of the country. And at this point, I may feel sorry for Biden, but I feel sorry for the American public more. Now, you mentioned inflation as the major issue of our times. Do you think that this is a similar sort of crisis as America and Britain faced in the 1970s? And you mentioned that massive overspending has likely led to this inflationary problem. Could we see similar crises as we saw back in the 70s? Oh, yeah, there is a sense of deja vu. And those were not those are not the kind of days that you want to revisit. And, you know, the the inflation rate isn't quite as high as it got at the end of the 70s. In the U.S., it closed on 15%, and that's really third-world levels of inflation. But we could get there. We're not far away. It's almost nine, and it keeps going up. And obviously, what's going on with energy is making it way worse. In a way, the energy crisis gives Biden an out because he can blame Putin's war rather than himself. But this got going before Putin's war. What could be the political consequences of this inflation? Well, whenever you've got an e- economic situation with, that makes lots of people unhappy, they always want to throw the bumps out. It's the economy stupid. That's what drives people to say we need new leader- leadership more than any other thing. To, to me, the bigger concern about our having produced so much excess currency is the status of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Lots of people don't understand what a reserve currency means. I don't want to condescend to your viewership, but as a caveat, it just means this is the currency in which worldwide commodities like energy, like corn and other grains, um, that's the currency in which these commodities are traded, and it is de facto the world's currency. So that in settling debts between nations, you know, that sort of thing, you use dollars. It's kind of the, the currency default all over the world. It's the one currency that everyone will accept, okay? So that gives the United States enormous privileges. One of those privileges, ironically, is to produce too much currency right? What becomes dangerous for the United States, and I tried to explore this in my 2016 novel, The Mandibles, 
when the first thing that happens is that the, the U.S. no longer holds the reserve currency. What would happen if other powers decided, okay, we're going to, we're either going to come up with a new currency, or we're going to pull, you know, the Russian ruble and the Chinese renminbi, and this conglomerate is going to be an alternative reserve currency. Well, in any case, suddenly dollars would become less valuable, less useful, and people would sell sell their dollars all at once. That you ain't seen no inflation like that. That would potentially lead to a technical hyperinflation. It would be a catastrophe for the United States. And that's what I've got my eye on. I think that's the much larger concern. And the more inflation there is with the dollar, the more it looks like, well, what's so special about this currency? It's turning worthless along with all the others. Don't we need something else? So all of these discussions about petty politics, Joe Biden versus Trump, perhaps look silly in a way when you look at the wider issues of of what's facing America today and you talk about the reserve currency, but also in Ukraine and Afghanistan, around the world, there seems to be people testing the power of the United States. And as as you mentioned earlier, the view of America is one of weakness. Do you think that America is heading towards a path where it's no longer the only major superpower? Oh, well, obviously. I mean, there's China. Putin is severely weakened himself. I mean, the the country of Russia is kind of pathetic, but it's not over yet. And it can still make a lot of trouble, as we've seen. A lot of American power is imputed to it. And that power is magnified by the perception of power. And that's how the United States throws its weight around because the U.S. seems intimidating or you don't know what they're going to do. I'm afraid with Biden, one of the problems is you know what he's going to do, which is kind of not much. In fact, as an aside, I get really frustrated by when he you know, keeps huffing and puffing about what if Putin uses chemical weapons or biological weapons and not much less nuclear weapons. And Biden just sounds like, oh, well, well, you better not, because we'll do something. <laughs> and it just makes him sound impotent. He has no idea what he would do. One of my biggest worries is that Putin takes a look at Biden and thinks, you know, I can use a tactical nuclear weapon because this guy is going to be terrified of returning in kind, as Biden would say. So he's not going to do it. He will not hit me with nuclear in, the, in return. And I suspect that is the case. It would just seem like an unhumanitarian thing to do. It would just make everything worse. Maybe he would get, maybe Putin would get away with using a nuclear weapon and nobody would do anything aside from, you know, dock his allowance again. So it's this perception of being large and undefiable with virtually infinite resources. It's a lie, but it's a very useful lie. And I'm afraid there's a feeling about the United States in the current era. It's like the wizard having poked his head out from behind the curtain. And still a large country, still has resources, but it looks vulnerable. It looks newly limited. And until very recently, hopelessly self-involved. Do you think that those around President Biden are turning on him? So his Democratic allies, for example, or even his allies in the media, do you think they're looking for alternatives? 
I think the Democratic Party is scrambling to figure out what they're going to do, not just in midterms. In, in some ways, the midterms are almost a write-off, but they have to be panicking about 2024. When they chose Kamala Harris with far too little consideration, she was just chosen because she was a woman and she was half black and half Indian, and that seemed to check all the boxes. And it, nobody took the appointment seriously. It, what was weird about that is not only do you have an elderly president who could have a medical emergency anytime, so more than ever you have to take seriously the whole heartbeat away from the presidency thing, but everyone was also blithely assuming that she would probably run for president in 24. But everyone hates her. I mean, it would be a catastrophe for Democrats to run Kamala Harris. There are few politicians in all of American politics that unite the country in loathing. We don't have time to explore why, aside from, I think, just there's something. I don't know how else to put it. There's something about her that is really annoying and a turnoff. And then it turns out, on top of everything else, she's incompetent and can't think on her feet, and she's not very bright. So she was already over-promoted when she was chosen for vice president. But who else do they have lined up? Pete Buttigieg? I'll never get his pronunciation quite right. You know, he's not impressive. He's not an intimidating or or august person. I don't know who the Democrats are going to run in 24. And you know the way American politics works, the fact that I don't know that is shocking. Now, even I, little me, off in London, should already know who's going to be running for president on the Democratic ticket in 2024. And I have no idea. It's almost, it's not far away in, in political terms. The Republicans, as a consequence, if they get their act together, could be much better prepared than the Democrats for the next presidential election. So if they could only shed Trump, I have my idea, uh, my uh, eye on um, on DeSantis in Florida. He was very impressive during the pandemic. He was one of the only governors who set about purposefully to educate himself about epidemiology and public health policy. In public, he was impressive in in his knowledgeability. He had a real light touch during the pandemic. He was one of the first to get rid of the lockdowns, was very suspicious of mask mandates and vaccine mandates. I thought he distinguished himself. In, and throughout the pandemic, as a consequence, he also established a national profile. If I were uh, one of the Republican higher-ups, I'd just seize on this and run with it. But they have this huge Trump problem, and it's very difficult to know how to get rid of the guy. I did have one encouraging encounter just last week with someone who, you know, she's with Republicans abroad or something like that. So she's really stuck in to the Republican establishment in a way that I am not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, she, she and I have spoken on opposite sides on panels because she was a Trump supporter. And I've never backed that guy. She says she doesn't want Trump in 24 either. She's backing DeSantis. And this was a passionate Trump supporter. Now, look, it's, only, it's not a poll. It's one person. But I just, I found that encouraging. And I'm really hoping it's a sign. In one sense, the next presidential election is virtually tomorrow. But in another sense, 
there's still plenty to play for, especially since the Democrats are not getting their act together. You know, there is enough time for the Trump effect to wear off and for self-interest to take hold in the Republican Party and to think, you know what, as long as we don't run Trump, we're shoe-in. So let's put that era behind us. So just quickly on DeSantis, now he's fascinating, and I've got a question on him later, actually, because, and for British viewers who don't know who he is, he's the Florida governor. He was, you know, sort of Trump-supporting Republican, but he's made his own name out in America through his very, uh, I don't know, his very direct and populist kind of platform, I, I guess. Could he persuade you to vote for the Republicans? Because I know you're a registered Democrat. I'm assuming you've never voted Republican. Maybe I'm wrong there. But let's say he ran in 24. That's correct. I never have. Would he persuade you to vote for them in in 24 if he ran? Of course, that partly depends on who the Democrats win, run. Yes, I could probably be persuaded to vote for DeSantis. Certainly over Biden if he ran again, which I don't think he's going to. Overwhelmingly if they ran Kamala Harris after all. You know, my big nightmare has been the Democrats go ahead with Kamala Harris and Trump is nominated. And then I'm in a state of total horrified paralysis. I'm not quite sure what I would do. I hate to admit it, but it's possible that I would not vote. That's just a stupid solution. You know, that's an irresponsible solution. So I'm just praying that doesn't happen. In terms of the problems that the Democrats have, do you think this is a result of them choosing people on the basis of identity rather than merit? Yeah. I mean, that's what the Democrats have been doing up and down every appointment. It's determining who they run for office. The identitarian left has completely taken over the upper uh, levels of the Democratic Party, and that's all they care about, you know, and down to... Supreme Court nominees. And I was quite public about opposing the fact that Biden made it the one and only condition of that appointment was that it was a black woman. And that is not the way to choose your Supreme Court justices. Not the way to choose anybody, really. On the left, that's just unquestioned now. That is a social good, that you choose people because of their race or their sexual proclivities or their gender. And I've argued till I'm blue in the face against this way of looking at people. And I believe that we need to elevate people in accordance with merit. But that's a very old-fashioned view, and it's not winning, not in the U.S. right now. It's not even winning in the U.K., this is interesting, isn't it? Because these culture wars are happening all around the world. And we've just had an election in France. For- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Example, or we're in halfway through an election in France, I should say, and the country there seems, again, bitterly divided over relatively similar issues. It's not the exact same but there are problems in France to do with cultural divides. And of course, in Britain, you're right, we've got the same issues, perhaps on a slightly more minor scale, or maybe it's not. And this is the question I'm going to ask. Is America really that divided when you compared compared to other countries? Is this a surface level division or does this go much deeper than we realize? Oh, it's huge. It's not superficial. Um, If nothing else, it's profoundly social. Democrats, and Republicans are not marrying each other, and they're not friends. They not only live in different neighborhoods, they live in different states. The U.S. is becoming a segregated society, and I'm not talking about race. This is not what I grew up with. This is a new phenomenon. It's always been true. There's been an element of, you know, there have been blue states and red states, but it's getting much more segregated. Do you think that this is, in a way, one-sided? And I know this question sounds slightly biased, but when you look at the opinion polls and you ask Democrats and Republicans whether they want to marry each other or be friends with each other or whatever, the Democrats always seem to be slightly more intolerant than the Republicans towards their fellow Americans. Do you think that's the case? Oh, absolutely. And that's been backed up in poll after poll. I mean, ask Eric Kaufman. This is an overgeneralization, but I think it holds. Republicans have opinions, okay? It does, they have a view of the world. And everyone thinks that their opinions are right to a degree. But they're aware that there are other opinions out there which differ. And they'll still maintain their position. But it's a very different kind of feeling that you are right than you get from the Democrats who believe that the justice of their positions is self-evident. It is always not just a matter of opinion, but of morality. Um, Goodness, virtue is on their side. There is no other side, right? So that if you, you do not simply disagree with them, you are evil. You are wrong. You are a force of malice in the world. And there is something wrong with your character, right? And... This means, of course, you don't want to marry somebody who's evil. You don't want to marry somebody who's the source of all wickedness in the world. It's just, it's not a matter of disagreement for Democrats. And that means that all these polls do document that Democrats are much more judgmental, much less likely to marry or befriend people who disagree with them. And And I find this socially. It always interests me as well that in the U.S. when you make someone's acquaintance, especially in Democratic enclaves. And they always assume, the Democrats always assume that you agree with them. Always. <laughs> especially if they like you a little bit. 
then of course, you know, you're all on the same side. Whereas Republicans do not make that mistake. And Republicans are used to going to dinner parties and keeping their mouths shut and looking around and taking the measure of the room and trying to decide whether it's safe to open their mouths and say something that isn't straight down the line progressive politics. And that's what I'm talking about, that awareness that there is another position, that there are other people out there who don't agree with you. Republicans do not presume that whenever they walk into a room, everyone else is a Republican, whereas Democrats do. So weird. Is there a sort of religious aspect to this, the way that Democrats perhaps view their own positions in this very moralistic term, this very black and white, you agree with me or you don't and you're evil or you're good? Is this a sort of, you know, with the decline of religion, particularly among sort of democratic voters, perhaps their politics is, is sort of replacing that, or at least they've become more ideological than the Republicans, perhaps because of that religious divide? I mean, yeah, yeah that's been observed repeatedly in recent times that the whole woke movement especially has an element of religiosity to it and I think that's sound. It's funny, even calling something a religion has become a cliche. There are lots of things that we end up comparing to religion because nobody has religion anymore. And it used to be the case that the U.S. was still much more religious than secular Europe and, I, and it still is statistically, but that's remarkably on the slide. And I think that this element of moral denunciation of the other side is religious in character, that the culture war is a holy war. And when you question the tenets of woke world, you are saying, you know, there's no such thing as the Virgin Mary and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I mean, it's, it's, it's questioning people on a very deep catechismic level. I don't know how much it get how far it gets us to make that observation. I've encountered it over and over again and all that just means is that these people are not subject to rational argument. I'm all too aware, for example, when I write columns, that I'm only writing for people who already agree with me. I never imagine that someone who would be categorized as far more progressive than I am now, is going to be reading my column and converted to my perspective. People who don't agree with me don't read me. They will sometimes get hysterical on social media and upset by what I I have written, but they won't read it. It, It's a lot easier to get upset about something that you don't don't read. (laughs) So even when objecting to my columns, my opponents will not read the column. It's that bad. What about when you're writing your novels? Because obviously you've written many popular novels, and one of the interesting things at the moment is the battle within different publishers as to whether to publish, let's say, more conservative or moderate voices, even in fiction writing. And, you know, look, just look at J.K. Rowling. She's been so-called cancelled by the entire kind of left because of her views on trans rights. And there are many authors and more, you know, much smaller authors than probably yourself and J.K. Rowling, but uh, who are saying, you know, I'm really struggling to get published here because of my views or because my novel perhaps has a, a non-woke uh, message. I've talked about the whole um, woke publishing thing excessively, perhaps. But I think what publishing is missing is how much money there is to be made in the pushback 
against woke. After all, that far-left perspective uh, appeals to a very narrow band of people. Now, maybe some of those people are book buyers, but the people who are resistant to the more extreme tenets of the ideology encompasses almost everybody. The vast majority of people are not woke. And among that population, there are a lot of people who have been following the takeover of Western institutions by this pretty fanatical agenda with horror and are looking for books that give them a sense of comfort and a, and a sense of company and a voice. You know, Douglas Murray sells very, very well, and for good reason. There is money in conservatism right now, and especially if you regard conservatism as beyond Tories and basically encompassing everything but this far-left woke stuff. I mean, you, you could sell lots of novels that appeal to that perspective, not that anyone is writing them, aside from me. <laughs> You're so right to, to say that you've answered this question before, and you've talked to, in this interview about using, me using cliches and things. And, you know, these, the discussion about the culture wars have been going on for a long time. So I guess these things will, you know, will continue to come up. On that sort of point of context, where do you think we're at in terms of the culture wars? What has happened in the last few years who has been winning? Has there been any major victories on either side? Do you see it coming to a close? Can you just sort of give an assessment of where we're at after years and years of these endless discussions on YouTube? Well, I think you want me to tell you what I want someone to tell me. <laughs> when is this going to be over? And in fact, I hear this from many quarters. Like, have we reached peak woke yet? Are we on the other side of this? Are we finally starting to win? And I think that's impossible to discern. That's one of those determinations that you can only make in retrospect. In lieu of getting better, it's getting worse. I first hoped that the one thing we might get out of COVID was that it would make the culture wars seem petty and stupid. And instead, especially with the George Floyd in the middle of it, made everything worse. So that didn't work. Because I had said for years, oh, the one thing that we need is a real problem. And then all the little fake problems will go away. And I thought COVID was that real problem. Well, it didn't work. It wasn't real enough. It wasn't big enough. The other possibility is Ukraine. I mean, it has been something of a relief to me to have a problem that unites the West and in many ways unites even the, those two cleaved halves of the United States. I mean, there's a little naysaying on, on the right, uh, we don't need to get involved in this. It's sometimes interpreted, I, perhaps maliciously, as being pro-Putin. But in the main, I think Americans and Britons, including Remainers and, and Leavers, are united in opposition to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And it's it's a, I find that an emotional relief. It's like a timeout and also a, a reappraisal of, oh, I, this is real morality. This is really bad. And it's, we've been saying all, this is, all these other things are terrible. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> a slightly less diversity than we want. Well, is, there's no comparison 
to the raising of cities with full of innocent people who don't deserve it. I mean, it's, it has been, I would say, refreshingly shocking. Um, and the other thing that's been a relief is what effect it's had on journalism. It, I, it's been great to watch journalists be proper reporters, and they're not out lobbying for one side of a domestic agenda. They're just trying to explain what's happening and often putting themselves in harm's way in the process. I have finally started reading the New York Times with seriousness again, at least on this story, because I feel I can trust what those reporters are saying. A little horrifying to discover that, gosh, the depths to which I did not trust them previous to this war. And, and I, I would say the same thing of Channel 4. The Channel 4 News has an integrity it hasn't had for years. Throughout this conflict, there's been many people on the right in America, and I'm glad you mentioned them, who say that the media has been biased and who say that the media have been sort of allowing for blatant pro-Ukrainian propaganda, for example, to go on the airwaves, and they're sort of anti-interventionist, and this is, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Do you think that these people have any point? I mean, I think there has been some exaggeration in news outlets and perhaps some hyperbole and things like this. What do you say about this? And, and again, it's a war situation, so of course, the truth is very difficult to understand. Well, having gone through COVID brainwashing in particular, I think that we would all be wise to keep an eye out for propaganda and to realize that, you know, just as Putin's propaganda has been horrifyingly effective in Russia and controlled what people believe and the facts they have access to, we're subject to some of the same forces. And it's naive to imagine that your side is only telling the truth and the other side is telling all lies. We do have a freer press, so I take heart in that. But an element of mistrust has been well-earned. So trust but verify, as Reagan would say. In terms of the broader, on that question of whether you know, the culture wars are ending, there are some conservative writers who have been saying for not just the last few years, but the last few decades, that we've been going through a sort of cultural revolution. If I'm talking about, for example, Peter Hitchens in Britain. I've recently read his fantastic book, The Abolition of Britain, which basically talks about the cultural tide or against social conservatism in Britain since really 1914 and, and, and accelerating after World War II. I'm sure he would view these current culture wars as a sort of a manifestation of this much broader and longer timeline of our society fracturing. And we were actually talking, I think, before recording this, about you know those elements where people were becoming less connected to their own uh, individual communities and things like this. So do you think that this battle has been going on for far longer than people realize, and that actually this culture war is not gonna end? It's, actually, it's been going on this slope for you know 100 years, you could even argue. And we're simply looking at the sort of heightened and very obvious version now that it's all come out of the woodwork, I guess, in that sense. Well, I can't speak for uh, the last hundred years, but I can certainly confirm that uh, in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, many of these issues were also present during the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of criticism of government, U.S. policy. There was a lot of sense of shame about being American, and that was something that I carried with me uh, into my early adulthood, I didn't really challenge 
the fact that I was a little bit personally ashamed of being American when I was abroad, which was which became all the time, until at least I don't know, maybe thirty, the age of thirty-five. I only caught myself on. It's like, what's wrong with being from the United States? You have to be from somewhere. It's not my fault. I didn't choose to be born there, and I don't see what good it does for me to be ashamed of the country. And it doesn't make you look very good to walk around being ashamed of who you are. So I, I, I dropped that. But that whole anti-Americanism position held fiercely by Americans, which is perverse, goes way back. And a lot of the people that I grew up with are now in, in power. So, you know, they control institutions. They're the head of museums. They're politicians. So it makes perfect sense that these people are susceptible to that kind of fake self-criticism. I say fake because they're not really criticizing themselves, they're criticizing other people. There is therefore a, a lack of communal unity in my country that has been going on my whole life. And therefore you're right that to imagine that this is that this latest iteration is the real problem and it's going to be over any time now is probably a big mistake. It is turning into an almost, I mean, this is an overused word, but it is an almost existential issue. I don't know how much more divided the U.S. can get and still function. We've already gotten to the point where close to three-quarters of the party that lost the last presidential election does not accord the results any legitimacy. Now, that's close to real practical dysfunction. The U.S. sells its democracy as most of all because we have free and fair elections and the losers accept the results and step aside. That's the whole concept. And right now, even that is in trouble. Now, I say that, and on the other hand, I I think I'm, I'm still pretty complacent. I'm not actually afraid that the country is going to explode into real civil war and that we're going to have a secession or battles and, you know, huge battles in the street over who's president. I mean, I'm not a- actively afraid of that because I have grown up in, in a stable country. And like anyone who's grown up in a stable country, I can expect it to continue to be stable. So I can rhetorically speak about my concerns, but they're not on a gut level. I'm not, my solar plexus is not tightening. Again, you rightly mentioned that we've been through a historic period of stability and safety and, you know, without war and without any serious problems for the last, let's say, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, in particular after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And therefore, both of these things may add to a a certain level of complacency where people think that because things have been stable, as you say, for the last 20, 30 years, or perhaps even longer, then they will continue to be stable after that. And of course, there is no certainty that that is the case. And just look at the, ma- the major issues that are going on now in Ukraine or with hyper, or not hyperinflation yet, but with inflation. Do you think that people are being far too complacent here? Do you think you're being too complacent? Yes, so it's, it's hard to know what to do about it. I mean, yes, we are broadly complacent. In fact, I did a speech uh, in 2020 whose co- core point centered on that word. And I, I felt that COVID lockdowns were complacent. It's as if you can do anything to a society and it will be fine. 
and and do anything to an economy and it will be fine. And I consider all these progressive wokesters who want to tear everything down, I think they're complacent because they don't really want to tear everything down. They want to jump up and down and get attention and be in positions of power and exercise power, but they want to be able to update their iPhones and get their stuff, pumpkin canapes in the grocer's freezer and their vegan whatever. I mean, they're used to democratic capitalistic systems working, and therefore it's all very easy to talk about trying to bring an end to capitalism when you don't really mean it. (laughs) And they don't. They don't really mean it. But what do you do about complacency? I mean, complacency is is only going to be upset when something happens that means you actually have to do something, you actually have to worry about it. And I think, for example, uh, the UK is likely to become far less complacent about acceding to net zero policies that the government has committed the country to without asking, right? without asking the people who are going to have to sacrifice for it, just because it's an understood good. Now it's starting to hit what that means, how much uh, the government plans to intrude on our choices and tell us, no, you may not buy a petrol-driven car. That's not allowed anymore. You may not buy a gas-fired boiler. The amount of uh, control that we are busy granting government over our individual lives is extraordinary. Now that the prices are going through the roof for our our energy and we realize that the government has not made any provision, not only in the medium or long term for energy provision, but short term, people are, are not complacent anymore. They now feel much more is at stake. They may be at a little, a little at a loss as to what to do, but they're not sitting around feeling neutral or ignoring it. You can't ignore it. There's too much money involved. Thank you, Lionel, for joining us. That was absolutely fantastic. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.